My name is Candace Matthews Brackeen. I'm general partner at Lightship Capital. I'm redefining venture capital by investing in underrepresented founders. Welcome to the first close, Carta's podcast about the people who are building next generation venture capital firms. We interview new voices in venture about their ambitions and challenges as they aim to redefine the industry. At Carta, we help VCs build enduring venture franchises, starting with Fund One. To learn more about how Carta expands access to equity and transforms capital markets, visit us at Carta.com. That's C-A-R-T-A.com. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinion or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. I'm Jessica Strauss, host of The First Close, and today we interview Candace Matthews Brackeen, general partner of Lightship Capital based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Candace has spent her career growing the startup ecosystem in the Midwest. She has been an entrepreneur, accelerator founder, advocate, and now venture capital investor. Her new firm is Lightship Capital, which she co-founded with her husband and longtime collaborator, Brian, to invest where there have historically been major funding gaps. Lightship Capital invests in founders in the mighty middle who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ, women, and people with disabilities. As we do every week, we'll start with our guest slash line, the key stats that make up their unique track record. Let's go into Candace's slash line. After graduating from the University of Cincinnati, where Candace was an all-star econ and stats major and worked part-time for Delta Airlines, Candace founded two businesses, a stroller company and fitness franchise. As Candace became more and more involved in the startup ecosystem in Ohio, she noticed a major gap in resources for Black founders, so she started the Black Founders Network and later founded the Hillman Accelerator to support underrepresented founders. Now, Candace has launched her first venture capital firm, Lightship Capital, to double down on the work she's been doing supporting underrepresented founders. Well, Candace, welcome to The First Close. I'm really excited to have you here. You have an incredible background. You're based in Cincinnati, Ohio. From everything I've read and heard from you, you are taking the Midwest by storm in a way that is very much needed. So I would just love to start this conversation with you sharing with us the mission of Lightship Capital and what you are all doing. So Lightship Capital is a fund that really came from my work previously in nonprofit accelerator work. But Lightship is a $50 million fund focused on supporting companies here in the mighty middle of the U.S. who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ, women and the disabled. So those just typically overlooked in venture capital in some pretty cool sectors that we know and love here in this part of the country. So consumer packaged goods and services, e-commerce, sustainability, AI, and healthcare. 
And you have been involved in the startup and venture ecosystem in Ohio for a really long time. Would you take us back to your first entrepreneurial initiative in Ohio? I know that you had a lot of entrepreneurial experiences as an undergraduate in college. So take us back there. Take us back to the early years of your career. What is the starting point of entrepreneurship for you? I was a curious child. I was a curious person in college. And I would say that it's constantly who I am. It also came with boundless energy. I am easily bored and like to find new things to do and ways to solve issues. So my goodness, I think I've done close to seven things. And it just depends on how we look at them. So in college, I took a gap year and became a flight attendant for Delta Airlines. During my time there, I was able to write a formula for them to help schedule flight attendants. No big deal. Just completely revolutionized Delta as an undergraduate. I wouldn't say all that. I'm sure they don't use it anymore. But it changed my life and it allowed me to choose my own path while I was there. And it was in the area of scheduling, obviously. And I loved that. And I was able to use that math algorithm for other companies that I started that had to do with scheduling. So for a while, I was scheduling umpires and referees for the city of Cincinnati. I did the same thing with a little company I had called Hello Parent, which is a mobile app to help parents connect and organize activities. So that was my first venture-backed company. But beyond that, I owned a fitness studio here in Cincy. I had a fitness franchise. That was my first thing out of college. It was a stroller business. And I actually started my own stroller business called Fit Mommies that I sold to my co-founder. So it's been a lot of stuff. And some has been good. Some has been bad. But all at some point generated revenue and helped me to put food on the table. And how did you fund those first businesses? Hello Parent, the fitness franchise, Fit Mommy. Did you take venture capital? Did you take on loans? What was your approach? All were a little bit different. With the fitness franchise, I went to my dad and said, hey, dad, I'm thinking about doing this. And it wasn't much money. It was $10,000 to buy this franchise located out in California. So we split it. I saved up $5,000. He gave me $5,000. And it was the way I started. I think it was 23 years old, right? I didn't have any kids of my own, but I knew the fitness industry, had a couple of certifications, loved fitness for years and years. So that was how I funded the fitness franchise for my fitness studio. That one was a little bit more difficult. Starting a brick and mortar company in general is not easy and banks are risk averse. So it just took a long time figuring it out. I was able to navigate the local SBA as well as our African-American Chamber of Commerce to help find a loan that would work to fund fitness equipment. So bikes, et cetera. I won a few small grants as well, and that's what got us started. And we were able to get a loan from a Native American bank out in the Southwest to get us funded. And I happily paid that off to the very end. For Hello Parent, we took venture. So that was the first time going into that. I went through an accelerator here locally in Northern Kentucky called Uptech. It was a fantastic experience. We were in their third cohort. And that's when I learned a little bit of the business of raising venture capital. So some of the mentors that were there at that program shared with me what venture is. And our first attorney was a mentor there. And my co-founder for my accelerator was a mentor there. And a lot of that network came from that. So it's been quite a journey, but that's how I've funded my companies. And you eventually went on to found Hillman Accelerator. 
What lessons did you take from your own experience as an entrepreneur raising capital for your companies as you founded that accelerator and provided guidance to other entrepreneurs? I would say I was not and I'm still not the end-all be-all. I'm not the only mentor. I have a small experience, but I think that my strengths are with network and building community, not so much telling somebody how to build a $1 billion business, right? Because I've not done it. So we've got to find those people. But the experiences that I've had, like don't spend money too early on the wrong things like marketing, because that was a mistake that I definitely had made. You don't need to sell it before you've built it. You can sell the dream just fine, but it doesn't need to happen through spending money on marketing dollars. Other things that I learned was really understanding your term sheet and what you're getting yourself into. How much money to raise? I think that five or six years ago, and maybe even today, people are told, you don't need to raise a big round. And it really depends on what type of company you're building. But for the most part, you need to make sure you have enough and a little bit more. So don't get yourself into this situation where you're a Midwestern company and you don't have enough venture and suddenly you get toward the end. There's no one to save you here in this part of the country. On the coast, there's plenty of venture. But in the Midwest, we just have a different set of circumstances. So that's definitely something that I share with them, as well as making certain that you build a strong team. And so I would say those are three things that I share with the companies that go through the program. But there are a lot of other great mentors that help them as well. So I want to dive in a little bit to your perspective as a woman of color in the Midwest who's been a serial entrepreneur and now a venture capital investor investing in other underrepresented groups. With Lightship, you have a real opportunity to accelerate trends that you want to see come into being. Because already the Midwest is undercapitalized. And if you look at average seed rounds compared to the coasts, you don't have a lot of money coming into the mighty middle, all of the states in between California, New York, and Massachusetts. So there's already a significant challenge if you're an entrepreneur in the Midwest. And so much has been written about the opportunity of going outside of the coast, especially now. But I think that it's going to take intentional investors like you to change it. So what have you seen change in the Midwest? And what do you hope to drive as part of Lightship Capital? I think we've just seen a willingness to talk about the actual problem. That's the change that I've seen. I think that when I got into this work and when we launched the accelerator in 2017, people weren't necessarily wanting to talk about the undercapitalization of minority-led tech companies. I think they saw it as a nice to have. It would be nice if we started doing this, but it wasn't part of the strategy. And I think through my own conversations, specifically here in Ohio, we've moved beyond just like the conversations and moved toward building an actual regional strategy for supporting this particular demographic. For us, we already have great companies here and we'll also entice people to move here, but it's all about storytelling. We have a major storytelling issue here in this part of the country that startups don't exist, that talent isn't here, that there isn't enough funding. Now, it is definitely low. Do not get me wrong, but there are great things happening and we have fantastic assets and potential acquirers are in the center of the country. When you look at acquisitions and what's happening, TechCrunch, et cetera, and you see these things happen, they're not necessarily getting acquired from companies in California, in New York, in Boston. They're getting acquired by things in other places. 
So for us, we want to change the narrative about what's actually happening. So telling the wins of our companies, not necessarily of Lightship Capital. Nobody should care about what I'm up to. What they should care about is what is Nash up to at Undock? Or what is Jeremiah up to at Fresh Fry? Or what is Melanie up to at Hot Hijab? Those are the stories that we've got to tell, the stories of great Midwestern companies winning. And if we can do that, maybe then we don't run into this flyover issue. Though I think the time of flyover is over because we're all just flying into people's living rooms at this point. Let's tell those stories. So the first investment that you all have announced for Lightship is a company called Fresh Fry. Tell us about Fresh Fry. What are they doing with their business? Where are they based? Who is their founder? What should we know about them? Jeremiah Chapman is a chemist in Louisville, Kentucky. He went to the University of Louisville. When he was a kid, he remembered his grandmother putting a piece of potato in her fish oil grease to get rid of the yucky flavor. He's used that idea to create a plant-based pod that you put in commercial cooking oil at the end of the night, and it cleans the oil. It extends the life for two to four additional days, which is great. And sustainability is one of our pillars that we invest in. It's really about the size of a half sheet of paper. You pop it at the end of the night, you fish it out, and then the oil is clean in the morning. Before, the form factor used to be where you poured a toxic powder into the oil while it's hot. The employee at the restaurant would stir it while the oil is hot, risking getting burned. And then you have to strain it. And then the oil is clean, but not as clean as you would get with the fresh fry pod. They're doing really well. They just closed a $3.2 million round. They're in somewhere between three and 4,000 restaurants. And they're looking to go into commercial manufacturings and cleaning the oil that comes with a snack food or cereal that gets fried. And so we're really excited for that particular company. It's a small but mighty team. And it doesn't sound sexy, but hey, we eat stuff that's deep fried here in the United States. If we can get a four extra days of our cooking oil, like that's going to help sustain this planet that we happen to be living on. So that's one that I love. And the founder, Jeremiah, is just a genius. He just has a sense for what he's trying to build and grow. And I know that lots of other great ideas are going to come from inside of his head. And one of the things that strikes me about Fresh Fry is it is not an obvious venture capital type investment. It's not a SaaS company. It is rooted in manufacturing and food and the food industry. So I think going back to your earlier point that the Midwest is full of incumbent companies that can be good partners to more traditional industries that are looking to innovate. Fresh Fry strikes me as an example of that. What other sectors do you look at in the Midwest or do you see coming through your door as an investor that may not fit the typical B2B SaaS model? One of our investments is Hot Hijab. It's a hijab company for... I love that company. I'm obsessed with the founder. Love it. That company has been around for 10 years and they're really hitting their stride right now. And by 2030, 25% of the global population will be Muslim. When we were talking to that company and then other potential investors, folks said to us, oh, that's a niche. And women are not going to continue to wear hijabs. That's actually not the trend. And that is a majority person 
making a decision about a minority group or a perceived minority group. And they just don't quite understand the hijab is not there to keep a woman in her place. It's there for that woman and her relationship with her God. And though we sometimes feel like it right now, godlessness isn't the trend. So I truly believe that's not an obvious one, but they've recently come out with a sports hijab and it's made out of coffee grounds and some other things. It's biodegradable. So it hits our sustainability pillar. It hits our consumer packaged goods pillar. And gosh, sales are strong. That sports hijab sold out within days of them releasing it. It's pretty amazing. Where is Hot Hijab based? They're currently in New York. They're going to be opening a flagship store here in the center of the country soon. That's amazing. Yeah. So I want to dive into this notion of the mighty middle and the geographies and all of the states in between the coasts. You're based in Cincinnati. There's a ton going on in Ohio itself. You could probably invest all of your fund into Ohio-based companies. But how do you think about the different tech hubs especially for our listeners who may not spend a lot of their time in the Midwest, what would you say to an outsider about how to understand the American Midwest from a tech perspective? Absolutely. I would say that each tech hub has great assets and each has its own challenges. I think that that happens everywhere. Here in Cincy, we're really strong in life science and obviously in consumer packaged goods. You go up to a Detroit and mobility is really strong. And that city is, as they say on all their commercials, a city of makers. Things get built in Detroit. Chicago, you've got a lot of financial happenings and amazing SaaS companies being built. Indianapolis, you have, again, life science, but biotech with Eli Lilly being there in town and a really strong strength with Salesforce and others and Angie's List with that big exit that they had and exact target as well. So every region has its own assets. Even if you think about in Oklahoma, we do a little bit of work in Tulsa. Oil happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and throughout the entire state. They're looking towards sustainability and energy in different ways to help this planet over the next 100 to 200 years. So every ecosystem has its own assets and challenges and we can really find them and capitalize on the situation. So I would say that our ecosystems are younger. We obviously don't have the playbooks that they have on the coasts. We don't have the same number of reps. We don't have the same number of investors. But I think what we're going to see over the next 12 to 36 months is we're seeing this great migration across the United States and people moving back home and wanting to be either closer to family or places that are a little bit less expensive. And so we will gain some mind share that happened on the coasts. And I find that to be incredibly exciting. You're seeing Mayor Suarez in Miami going crazy on Twitter, enticing people to move to his city. And I think we're seeing other mayors around the country starting to see, hey, if I get on here, I can help economic development in my area. So the Midwest is full of possibilities. And I think you also can't discount Carnegie Mellon and AI and what's happening in Pennsylvania. So there are just great things here. And we just can't discount an entire section of the country just because 70, 80% of our venture was going into three key areas. Absolutely. And 
Pennsylvania has seen some of the highest growth rates in venture capital coming into the state over the past five years. So definitely one to watch. I want to go back to your comment about the mayor of Miami, which I think signals a broader trend, which is some of the key first movers in non-coastal states have been government entities. Unlike on the coasts, we see state governments getting involved in funding the first seed funds or developing accelerators themselves. I think of Ohio is at the top of that list of states that has been forward looking and you've spent time getting involved with the Ohio government. How have you partnered with the Ohio state government? How have they supported your work? And what are some areas for growth, you think, between public-private partnerships in the tech sector? Wow. So if I'm being completely honest, I'm blessed to be an Ohioan. Every state, every city has its own storied past. But as an Ohioan, I would not be able to do what I'm doing without the support of the state, or at least it wouldn't have happened as quickly. So in 2016, when we started having these initial conversations about making certain that diversity and inclusion was top of mind when every decision was made, it wasn't easy. And my friends and I, in my little meetup group, we would attend city council meetings and state commission meetings, really helping them to understand we are being left out. You may not see it, but your numbers are wrong. Let's make some corrections. And with the help of a state senator here, Cecil Thomas, we were able to commission a small study called the Minority Entrepreneurship Connectivity Assessment, where it looked at how the state of Ohio was spending its innovation dollars. And what it found was, while we were an incredibly diverse state, we are not all that inclusive with the dollars that we are spreading throughout the local ecosystem. So we have a program called Ohio Third Frontier. OTF, for short, distributes funds to the three C's, so Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, as well as Toledo, Dayton, and other cities throughout the state. And they provide dollars for programming to help support innovation They support internships for students that are here in the state that want to work in the tech field. They also fund venture funds. And it's with those dollars that we've been able to thrive. So our first grant came from the state of Ohio to start the accelerator. We've just applied for funding for our fund to have them put dollars into the fund. And I think that's incredible that they've been able to do what they've done just on a small sales tax allotment that came to us. So I think that that's what's put Ohio ahead of the curve, especially in the life science space. We've seen some really big exits in life science from the dollars that came from OTF. Yeah, I think of the Cover My Meds exit in Ohio. One great example for folks who are in the Midwest who are thinking about starting their own venture fund. And maybe they're looking, as you have, at applying for funding from the state. Can you speak to that signal to other LPs that may be looking at your fund? What role does having the state backing your fund play? Is that a positive signal to the LP universe? What have you learned about that as you've gone about building Lightship? Yeah, everyone's different. And so we have a pretty broad range of investors. So ultra high net worths, we've got corporations, foundations, as well as some corporations in the fund and fund of funds. And everyone has a different opinion about what they would like involved. When you do take money from a government entity, 
sometimes the reporting is a little different. And so it takes a little bit more outside of your typical fund administration. And so that can be a deterrent for some investors. They may not want to be involved with that. For example, some states, when they are involved with funds, they don't participate in carry, which means that it's a loan, a low interest loan. And that's not something that you see other places. And so it really is in the best interest of the other LPs. If there is a group that takes a large allotment and they're not participating in carry, that carry goes to them. So that part of it is easier to sell, but it's the time that you have to spend on reporting that can be difficult. But really, every dollar that goes in, I think your LPs are just proud that you're able to do it and maybe even more proud of this particular vintage of general partners who are raising. Like in 2020 and 2021, I think we've all had a bit of tenacity and grit that maybe others from different vintages haven't had. Absolutely. You've been fundraising in the Zoom universe, which is unprecedented by all measures. Let's go into Lightship and talk more about your firm, your investment thesis, your partnership. I think one interesting nature of your partnership is you and your husband, Brian, are general partners of the fund. But I'd just like to step back and hear from you. How did you decide this was the moment in all of the chaos of 2020, et cetera, to form Lightship? And this is the general partnership that we want to build. Brian joined me in my work in late 2018. So he had just exited his facial recognition company, Kairos, in Miami and was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. We were engaged at the time and I said, hey, how about you come up here to Cincinnati and start mentoring the companies? And I guess that was my way to get him up here because I didn't get to see him all that often because we had a long distance relationship. But He had raised $13 million for his own company, got it to a really great valuation. And he was that one person I knew that had the street cred that no one else had had. You know, he had a team of 30, 35 before he left the firm. And could he come up here and really help the companies? And he was incredible at it. And he fell in love with the work. And through that first year, he helped with an acquisition at the accelerator where we acquired another entity. And then toward the end of the year, we had exhausted our prior micro fund that helped to fund the companies at the accelerator. And so we just sat down together with some other mentors here in the local area. And we said, hey, we're considering raising a fund. While we've raised our own funds, we've not done this before. So could you help? And our great mentor, a gentleman named Mike Venerable at Cincy Tech, really gave a lot of his time helping us to understand what it was going to take, nuts and bolts. We signed NDAs. He helped us figure it out. And we finished our docs to do a $20 million fund at the end of 2019. So before all of the craziness of the world, we finished the docs. And then by February, we found our first investor. March, we had raised 15 of the $20 million dollars. COVID hit and we got super nervous and we're like, this isn't going to fly. Like, good on us. We raised $15 million. Let's let everybody know. And then we ended up with this captive audience of LPs who still wanted to meet and they wanted to introduce us to their friends. And we then overshot the goal in April when a group called Second Muse took a really large allotment 
And it has been hectic because unfortunately, George Floyd was murdered. And then suddenly we had a different group of people that wanted to talk to us. Interesting. Foundations and ultra high net worth folks that wanted to correct a societal wrong or that they had seen suddenly that this was something they needed to focus on. And I would say everyone that we've talked to has had the best intentions in the world. And it took their organizations, that situation to make a change and make a commitment. So yeah, it's been hectic and crazy, but it's been a really great experience. And I am incredibly lucky to have been able to raise during a pandemic and during social unrest. Wow, that is an incredible story. And I think speaks to what I hope we will see is more demand for funds like yours that have a specific focus on an underserved market, an underserved group of entrepreneurs. But getting even to that point, you were February 2020, where you had your docs, you were in position to fundraise. During those first few months where you were contemplating, do we do this? Yes, we want to. Here are the steps we're going to take. What were the hardest parts of that initial phase of starting Lightship? What happened was we would go into a meeting, someone would ask us a question. We didn't always have the answer. We would say we'd get back and then we'd go figure it out. That would help to rebuild the deck and rebuild the story. And so we did a lot of storytelling and a lot of changes in the storytelling. Even today, there are little tweaks that happen here and there. And I think that was really difficult. Also, because we're emerging fund managers We just don't have experience, the experience you need. And so we had to create that. We were lucky with our first initial investments from the LPs that were a little bit smaller to then deploy that capital immediately and prove to our potential LPs that we were good pickers. These are companies that I would have picked too, and you can give your reasoning and understanding. So it was difficult in that February, March range because we didn't have any companies in the true portfolio. I had companies in my accelerator portfolio, but I didn't have any that they considered real investments. So that was difficult. Also, we just didn't have money. So we were just making it happen on our own dime. Thank goodness we had day jobs still, but guess what people don't want you to have? A day job. You look at folks like Jewel Burke from Google, also Collab Capital. She gets gigged all the time because she has a day job. But guess what? I have a day job and Elon Musk has a couple of jobs and Jack has a couple of jobs. And why don't we get the same grace? So those have been the challenges and were the challenges in the early stages. So you're iterating as you go while you fundraise, learning what your LPs want. You're raising little tranches of capital and deploying it to show how you will operate as a fund. And all the while you're creating, I'm sure, pitch materials, data room, et cetera. I do want to dive into some of these tactical elements because I think other emerging managers are thinking about these things as well. Which documents have been the most helpful and provided you the most leverage in in telling your story? Is it having the perfect pitch deck? Is it having a well-organized data room? Is it having references? It's some combination of all of those things, but what have been those highest value pieces of collateral or assets to help you get to where you are now? We've had amazing attorneys around us that were very conversational and not transactional. So we have people who speak actual English with us and we'll take a doc and help break down what it actually means over time. And 
This number here is going to cost you $4 million. This right here is something you can negotiate. And so I would say our conversational attorneys have been incredibly helpful. Also, great references <laughs> are great. I think that people can get away with tragic pitch decks as long as the story is great. I think our pitch deck, it's not tragic. It's great. It's been iterated. But the references have been incredibly helpful as an emerging manager. So finding someone who will vouch for you is huge. It's huge and helps you get through the diligence process because people are not going to put in hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars without a really strong background check and really strong references. And those people have to be willing to give a lot of time because you have to kiss a lot of frogs <laughs> before you're able to close any capital. And they're going to get tapped over and over again. And hopefully you bring a new LPs and they're willing to take some of those reference checks, but the references are really, really big. No surprise in venture capital, such a network-driven industry that the most important asset you have are those relationships, whether it's with your attorney or folks that you've worked with. Going forward, you'll now have a fund. You'll be deploying that fund. What are the challenges that are ahead? How do you think about building a network around Lightship? How do you think about enabling your portfolio companies? What are some of those things on your mind now that you're in a position to deploy a fund? For us, we're reimagining the way we take inbounds, so the way we do applications. And then secondarily, we're thinking about how we build value in our companies from the outside. So I'll start with the first one. We prefer not to take warm introductions. I'm certain that people in my network are great at picking companies, but I and my company, we want to be the people picking companies. And so we take cold inquiries to our website where people just fill out a very simple Google form. We read every single one as a group. We send out batches of no's and batches of yeses every single month. What we're doing right now is reimagining that practice to make certain that we're doing a better job at outbound as well. While we are reaching out to our network, how can we potentially use things like artificial intelligence to find more companies? And so reimagining how we drive additional people to the website. Last year, we took in like 1,300 pitch decks. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a whole lot. But we just want to make certain that the quality stays high and how can we drive that over time. So that's one thing that we're working on really specifically this month. And then the second part of that, we're also building a value creation team. So if you look at some of our folks we look up to at places like Google Ventures or A16Z, et cetera, they have value creation teams. And they build value in their companies every day from the outside, working with their portfolio companies. So as we've been building what we're doing, we've made certain that the hires that we make will be able to add value into the companies, not just us putting money in. We have a director of technology that helps companies to vet technical talent. And we've placed a few CTOs into the companies that we've invested in so far. We have a director of communications that helps with storytelling. And so if a company needs help with their storytelling in general, Vanessa from our team helps with that. 
we had a designer on staff, but they started to help one of our portfolio companies with some UI UX work. And that's where they are now. (laughs) So we're hiring a new designer. And so we're adding value into the companies and it'll get better over time. But I think that that's what the most successful firms do. They leverage their network to build value from the outside. The founders want help and support. Now, we've built a portfolio of companies that some need more support than others. And I think we always have to have that fine mix. And some don't want it. And that's okay too, (laughs) because there's only so many of us. But I would say that those are the two things that we're focused on for this year. I'd love to conclude with some advice from you to potential founders in the Midwest who are thinking of starting a company. What advice would you give to an entrepreneur in St. Louis or Indianapolis who are thinking about taking that step to start a company? What resources should they look at? What should they be aware of? So a friend of mine, Stefan Howie, he said once, you can still work your day job, but you're up watching Netflix from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. every day. Why not build a company during that time? That's my advice. Spend some time in the evening working it out. Flesh out all of those great ideas because there are very few investors that are going to let you learn on their burn. So time box that every day and work on your problem. Then find another crazy kid that wants to do it with you because you cannot do it on your own. There are solo entrepreneurs and solo founders, and many of them are incredibly successful. But I like larger founded teams. Not everybody on my team feels that same way, but Find someone else. And if they're not your co-founder, they're your first hire. And so I would say start there. I'd also say try selling it. Be that actually selling it and taking in cash or getting someone to say, I'm going to do an LOI for what you're doing. And that gives you traction. I think that revenue is fantastic. And so venture capital and being a venture backable company isn't the only way that you can do this. So I think that what a person should think about primarily is how do I do this before even considering? Because it's really a difficult industry to be in and only so many get picked. We took 1,300 applications last year. We invested in seven companies. That's not great. (laughs) And this year we'll only do 12 to 15. So again, it's really a hard industry. So I would say do everything you can during a certain amount of time. Find some other people to work with you on it. And really just try to drive toward finding your first customer and really your first 10 to 100 before you even start. But start the relationships early if you think you are going to want to go down that path. Candace's track record of supporting diverse entrepreneurs in hubs across the Midwest, in Chicago, in Detroit, in Tulsa, in Indianapolis, in Pittsburgh, in her hometown of Cincinnati, are an important part of the story of this rapidly changing region. But venture capital activity in the Midwest is still only a sliver of total U.S. activity. In 2020, the Midwest saw only 1% of total venture capital funding and 2% of total venture deals, according to data from PitchBook. But as the entrepreneurial activity grows across the massive mighty middle, the universities, the talent ecosystem, the steady stream of outperforming exits, and the policies that support innovation have created new momentum, and Lightship is helping to shape this new bright future.
The First Close is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Jessica Strauss. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director with sound production by Nick Canapa. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinion or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. Thank you.